I'm gonna show you how great I am. This was our final tower. I just wanna say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This is part three of The Life of Leonardo da Vinci. This is my end notes. So this is everything that I couldn't fit into the first two episodes because it didn't fit great into the narrative. These end notes episodes are a little bit more of a grab bag. So uh, there are going to be some insights and some stuff you can take away. There's also just going to be some interesting stuff to know about da Vinci that uh, you might want to fill in the gaps of what you know about him and his life. And on this particular episode, I'm going to talk about a few things. I'm going to talk about some of his relationships that we didn't have a chance to dive into. I'm going to talk about some conspiracy theories about the life of Leonardo da Vinci and some of his art. And I will also talk about the Ninja Turtles and why Leonardo is not properly named in the Ninja Turtles. So let's get into it. I wanted to start off talking about Salai. And Salai is essentially da Vinci's boyfriend. He's this little guy who worked in his studio, essentially an employee of da Vinci. And he often modeled for him. So a lot of his drawings are based on Salai. And his real name was Gian Giacomo Caprotti da Oreno. And Salai means little devil. And that was his nickname. And he was called little devil because he was deceitful. He stole from da Vinci all the time. He spent his money. There's a part in his notebook where da Vinci writes Salai and then lists out some attributes. He writes thief, liar, obstinate, greedy. And uh, that's true. Salai was stealing from him and spending his money all the time. And it drove da Vinci crazy, but he kept him around, I guess, because he thought he was pretty. You know, he was always drawing him and painting him. There's another entry in his notebook where da Vinci writes, Salai, I want peace, not war. No more wars. I give in. And so Salai was this little deceiving, terrible person who followed him around and took his money and actually somehow when da Vinci dies, Salai ends up with a bunch of his really famous artwork and ends up selling it. And so Salai was bad for da Vinci in a lot of ways, even though da Vinci was very fond of him. And it's a little bit of a shame that, you know, da Vinci was so taken with this person who constantly stole from him and lied to him and deceived him. Uh, there was another person who came along into his life. His name was Francesco Melzi. And Melzi came from a good, well-to-do family. He was reliable. He was a good artist, but not a great artist. He was well-liked. He was organized. He was responsible. And he was actually extremely helpful to da Vinci. He was helpful in organizing his studies. And he was helpful in, in business. And he was helpful in finishing his art. And in all likelihood, the relationship with Melzi was not romantic the way it was with Salai. And the reason that people think this in large part is because Salai never married um, after da Vinci died, but Melzi did eventually marry and have children. So he appears to have not been gay and, and didn't have a romantic relationship, but they had a very important professional relationship. It was more than professional. Actually, it was definitely a friendship. It was more than a professional relationship, but it was not romantic and it was very important to da Vinci. And so you just think, huh, if he had been able to find someone like Melzi a little bit earlier and had integrated him more into his life, had made him his primary assistant rather than Salai, what could that have meant for his output and what he was able to accomplish in his life? I mentioned this in episode two, but the partnerships were very important to da Vinci's life. And if he had had better partners, I think his scientific work would have had more of an impact. So this guy, Melzi, 
shows that he did have some good relationships that really helped him in his life. But his relationship with Salai goes to show that sometimes they were lacking and he was missing those great partnerships that could have been so productive for him. Speaking of partnerships and relationships, I want to talk a little bit more about his competition with Michelangelo and their relationship. So I mentioned at the beginning of episode two, this incident where Michelangelo insults Da Vinci and that they did not like each other. And many people did not like Michelangelo. I think it's almost certain that Michelangelo was on the autism spectrum, but he had all the kind of telltale signs. He had the fixation, the hyper-focus, the lack of understanding social cues. Uh, His nose was crooked from when he had insulted another artist and the guy had socked him and broken his nose. So Michelangelo was always insulting other people. Sometimes you get the feeling that it was like kind of accidental that he didn't understand that this was going to offend them so much. He's just like, no, I'm better than you and you're doing this wrong. And this is how I see it. And he just said what he thought. And so, you know, that's why no one got along with Michelangelo kind of like Da Vinci. You're like, oh man, it's too bad. This thing about his personality that he couldn't get along with others because think of what he could have accomplished if he was more collaborative. But at the same time, just like Da Vinci, that's what made him him. That like insane hyper-focus, that's what made him Michelangelo. And so I don't think it could have been any other way. In the same way that it's a very different attribute, but you know, if Da Vinci had not been so curious and always following his curiosity, even though that sometimes meant spacing out and not finishing stuff, that's what made him him. Michelangelo is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, had the opposite problem. But I, I think with people, with geniuses like this, you just take the good with the bad. Which brings me to the point of the Ninja Turtles, which I think are improperly named. So in the Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is a cartoon. I watched it when I was a little kid and it's crazy, but this is what they are. They are teenage mutant ninja turtles. They're turtles who went down into a sewer and I guess drank some toxic sludge and it turned them into human-sized ninjas and they go around fighting bad guys and fighting crime amazing show. They've made some movies of it. The movies are not so good, but the TV show, amazing. So in the TV show, they're named after Renaissance artists. They're named Donatello, Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Raphael. The thing is, they gave them the wrong names. So the leader of the group is Leonardo. He's got a blue headband. He's got swords and he's your classic sort of leader, take charge type. And then you've got Raphael, who is prickly and hard to get along with and always thinks he's right. And then you've got Michelangelo, who's this jokester, happy-go-lucky type of personality, never takes anything seriously. He's got the orange headband and the nunchucks. And then you've got uh, Donatello, who is the scientist type. So he's kind of nerdy, he has a staff, and he's very intelligent and always doing these experiments. Okay, so these are all backwards. So the science experimenter should be Leonardo. Leonardo of those four, was the one who was actually the most into science and doing scientific experimentation. And then Michelangelo, the orange one with the nunchucks, he should be named Raphael because Raphael was actually a disciple of Leonardo da Vinci's. And Raphael was really easy to get along with, a really happy social guy, well-liked. And Raphael should be Michelangelo because uh, actually Michelangelo was the prickly hard to get along with one. And then the leader, who's Leonardo, that should be Donatello because Donatello was actually the oldest of them, the one who came first. So anyway, 
they're all backwards. Leonardo should be Donatello. Donatello should be Leonardo. Michelangelo should be Raphael. Raphael should be Michelangelo. So there you go. That is why. And that's an easy way actually to remember who these Renaissance artists are. Okay. Well, I probably went on too long about the Ninja Turtles. So sorry. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was the other famous and very successful people that came into the life of Leonardo da Vinci. And I didn't have a chance to talk about all of them. So I talked about Machiavelli and Raphael, who was his disciple, Michelangelo, who he had a rivalry with. Um, but some of the other ones that are interesting is there was a family in Florence at the time called the Vespucci family. And they were a very successful, very prominent family in Florence. And if you've heard of any of the Vespucci's, you have heard of Amerigo Vespucci. And you might not know it, but the reason you have heard of him is at this time, uh, while da Vinci is alive, Christopher Columbus, who's from Genoa, not that far from Florence, discovers the new world. He discovers the Americas and brings the knowledge back to, to Europe. And so the Florentines decide, wow, um, if there is this new route to Asia. And, and so when Columbus comes back, and I say that Christopher Columbus discovered the new world, but it's a little more complicated than that because Christopher Columbus himself did not believe that he had discovered a new continent or new lands. He believed that he had discovered a new route to Asia. That is why to this day, uh, Native Americans are often called Indians or American Indians because he called them Indians because he had thought he had discovered a route to India. And so at this time, Florence, which is this great center of trade and commerce, hears that there is this new route to this big market of Asia and they think, okay, we have to get a part of it. And so they commission this guy named Amerigo Vespucci from the Vespucci family to go check it out, go do the same thing that Columbus did. And so Amerigo Vespucci goes and he's looking at this new territory and he goes, you know, guys, I don't think this is Asia at all. I actually think that this is new land that we had not discovered before. And he does a lot to map uh, the East coast of this new territory. And so because Columbus always believed that it was Asia, or at least claimed he believed it was Asia. And this guy, Amerigo Vespucci is the one who claims that, it, you know, for the first time that it is new land, it comes to be called America, South and North America after Amerigo Vespucci. And so Leonardo was actually friendly with the Vespucci family. He was very close with Amerigo's brother. And it's basically certain that Leonardo knew Amerigo Vespucci. So th that's really interesting to me uh, that he ran into him. One other person that you can draw a connection with is Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud said that he only wrote one beautiful work in his life. And it was about Leonardo da Vinci. And it runs through a number of his artworks and it takes a Freudian analysis of his artworks and looks at how it reflects maybe his inner psychology. And one of the things it talks about is there's this entry in his diary where da Vinci talks about his childhood and he had this obsession with birds. And so he writes, uh, and this is a quote, it seems that it had been destined before that I should occupy myself so thoroughly with the vulture for it comes to mind as a very early memory. When I was still in the cradle, a vulture came down to me. He opened my mouth with his tail and struck me a few times with his tail against my lips. Okay. So. Da Vinci was obsessed with birds. He was obsessed with flight. He loved to draw birds, to study their anatomy. And so he's saying that this is since he was a young, young child that he had become obsessed with these birds. 
And it was because while he was in the cradle, this bird comes in and sticks his tail in his mouth and strikes him a few times on the lips with his tail. Well, Freud comes along and uh, he does this classic Freudian analysis of breaking down every word. And he says, you know, the, a vulture at the time of Da Vinci was actually a euphemism for a phallus. And so this account actually is a veiled reference to a homosexual experience that Leonardo da Vinci had as a young man. And so he does this whole analysis on it, thinks it's the only beautiful thing he's ever written. And um, he was actually wrong about the translation. Da Vinci just doesn't say vulture. It got translated as that, um, but it's probably more like a kite. Uh, it's, a, it's just a different bird. And so the whole thing is just kind of wrong. <laughs> and so the analysis like doesn't really hold up when you take into account the true translation. And so someone exposes this and Freud was kind of embarrassed by it. So there's another connection. You've got Da Vinci and Amerigo Vespucci uh, and Da Vinci and Sigmund Freud. One other thing I'll mention is I talked about his connection with Niccolo Machiavelli. One thing I didn't mention was that after they left the service of Cesare Borgia, where they had been together, Machiavelli serves as the notary and signs a number of contracts for Da Vinci in 1504 after they left Borgia's service. So I love to think of that, that not only did they serve together and have a connection while they were together, you know, they happened to be thrown together in the service of this guy, Borgia, but they had a legitimate friendship. They continued to stay in contact and to work with one another. And so, you know, these geniuses really did recognize the intelligence in one another and wanted to, to stay in contact and wanted to continue to communicate. And we don't know much else about their relationship or what they talked about. You know, they didn't write about it, unfortunately. But it is, to me, so fun and interesting to imagine what they might have discussed. The last thing I have to say about Da Vinci and his relationship to all of these geniuses is that what is really interesting to me is at the time, Florence had a population of about 40 or 50,000 people. And right now I live in a city called Orem, Utah. You've probably never heard of Orem, Utah. Most people have not. City of no consequence. And it's amazing to me to think that in a city that was half as big as Orem, Utah, you get Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, Lorenzo de' Medici, Niccolo Machiavelli, Amerigo Vespucci, and of course others. There were other great artists coming around at the time in Florence. And it's just the genius per capita is off the charts. I mean, it's unlike anything else. And the other thing that's amazing about it is if you go somewhere else in the world where there are a lot of geniuses per capita, right now the highest is probably uh, either in the Boston area uh, with Harvard and MIT and all those universities there, or maybe Oxford or Cambridge or um, the Bay Area, San Francisco. If you go to any of those places, most people are not from those places, right? So if you go to the Boston, Cambridge area, the vast majority of people who are going to Harvard are not from Boston and Cambridge. These days, most of them are not even Americans, I think. Um, and if you go to Silicon Valley, yeah, most of the people are not from California. And that was especially true when Silicon Valley was just coming up, right? Whereas if you go look at uh, Renaissance Florence and all the geniuses that were there at that time, you know, again, only 40 or 50,000 people and all these people are homegrown. They were all born there. You know, uh, Medici, Machiavelli, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael. These people are from Florence homegrown. So there truly was something very, very special. And I think Florence is understudied in that way. How is that po even possible? You know, I talked in one of my episodes about the Polgars 
and this genius education they did where three children from the same family became three of the greatest chess champions of all time. And I think more families could recreate that. And I think more cities with intentional effort could recreate whatever it was that was happening in Florence in whatever, 1500 AD. At least I think more cities and towns should have that aspiration. Again, only 40 or 50,000 people. Okay, um, other notes. Da Vinci, I didn't talk much about his appearance. Apparently he was very, very good looking. Uh, he had a very well-proportioned body and a lot of people talked about it. There are quotes from uh, other artists and people who were talking about him at the time who throw in, you know, by the way, this Da Vinci guy, super handsome. <laughs> Just kind of throwing it as a side. He was apparently like strikingly handsome and he was blonde which I found interesting because I don't think of Italians usually as blonde, um, but he had very light curly hair, Da Vinci. Let's talk a little bit about conspiracy theories. A lot of these conspiracy theories revolve around the Mona Lisa. And so there are a few, and mainly they're around um, who is Lisa, why did he paint her, and why is her smile so intriguing? Because it is the smile that seems to know something, like it has a secret. And so people want to know, what is the secret? And so there are a few theories. One is that Leonardo was in love with this woman. And I don't find that super convincing because I don't think Leonardo was in the habit of falling in love with women. Doesn't mean it's not possible though. He wouldn't be the first primarily homosexual man to have fallen in love with a woman, but I just don't find a lot of evidence for that. Another theory is that someone else fell in love with her and it was actually Giuliano de Medici. So uh, Medici, the Medici family I have talked about they were the primary, they were the richest people in Florence at the time, the most powerful people in Florence. And uh, they were the people behind a lot of the art that was produced at the time. And there's one letter where there's an interesting sentence that says that Da Vinci is working on this portrait of this Lisa, the Mona Lisa, because of the advocacy of Giuliano de Medici. Okay, so the theory goes, well, why would Giuliano de Medici advocate so hard for this portrait of this woman who he was not married to. <laughs> and so the, the conspiracy theory is, well, perhaps he was having an affair with Lisa. So perhaps it was not Da Vinci who was in love with Mona Lisa, but it was Giuliano de Medici. And he is the one, he had all this money. He was a Medici. He kind of tell people what to do. And so he's the one who comes to Leonardo and says, Hey, you got to paint this Lisa del Giocondo. I'm in love with her, you know, and then he would have enough sway to kind of persuade Da Vinci to do this. So that's another conspiracy theory. Uh, that one I also do not find terribly, terribly convincing. It's just one sentence in one note. And I actually think the most likely explanation for that sentence is that it was just a mistake and it actually wasn't Giuliano de Medici that was advocating for this painting. And it was actually um, the Giocondos. So I think that was just a mistake and uh, there's probably no affair with uh, Lisa and Giuliano de' Medici. Another conspiracy theory is that it is a portrait of Leonardo. It is a self-portrait as a woman. So he decides to paint himself. I do not find this likely because da Vinci liked painting himself or at least sketching himself. He liked to draw himself. There's tons and tons of self-portraits as drawings and uh, they're very good and he was, you know, taken with himself, I guess. He, he, he did enjoy drawing himself. So I don't think he would have any problem, you know, coming out there and painting himself. I don't know why he would need to do a self-portrait as a woman. Also, 
uh, Mona Lisa just doesn't look that much like Da Vinci to me. And so I think this one is also wrong, but that's another conspiracy theory that's out there. The one conspiracy theory that I do think has some merit, it's kind of convincing to me, is that the Mona Lisa is actually Salai as a woman. And the reason I think it's convincing is if you go Google St. John the Baptist by Leonardo da Vinci, I have talked a lot about this portrait and we know that this is based on Salai. He drew and painted Salai a lot and that is definitely Salai. Well, if you go compare St. John the Baptist with Mona Lisa, it's pretty easy to convince yourself that these are the same person. Only one is slightly modified to look like a woman. And so I do think it's possible. They, I mean, they look a lot alike. They look a lot alike. And so I do think it's possible that Mona Lisa is actually Salai as a woman. This would have been very subversive. As a consequence, it probably wouldn't have looked much like Lisa. So maybe that's why the portrait was never delivered to her and why Da Vinci kept it with himself throughout his entire life. So it's still the realm of speculation. I don't even know if I'd call it a conspiracy theory because it seems like there's some evidence there, but it is certainly speculation. No one knows if it's really true or not. No one really knows why he gave her that, you know, haunting, uh, enigmatic smile. That's part of the thing that makes it so great is we don't know what it is that she knows that we don't know why she's smiling like that. A few other things about Leonardo that I didn't have a chance to mention. He was a vegetarian and he hated hurting animals. So he tried to wear clothes that were made out of, you know, plants rather than skins or wool even. So he was a vegetarian. Um, you know, he's just one in a long list of great and successful people who had kind of odd limited diets for whatever reason is a, is a common attribute. You know, uh, there are <laughs> rumors about Putin and his habit with, uh, I think it's, uh, like hard boiled eggs. He'll only eat a hard-boiled egg for, egg for breakfast, and that's it. And, of course, Steve Jobs was always going on these weird diets of eating only apples. And he, and he was vegan, I think, for most of his life. Uh, Thomas Edison would sometimes only drink milk. He'd go on these all-milk diets. And I have tried that recently, by the way. I went, for a couple days, I just did an all-milk diet with raw milk. And uh, I actually liked it. Maybe I'll talk about that on another episode. But it's very focusing to know what you are going to eat, or in this case, drink for every meal. I had to put zero mental effort into thinking about food. I was just drinking milk. If I was ever hungry and thinking like, oh, I need a snack, just drink milk. And uh, it frees up a lot of mental capacity to think about work and other things. So it's interesting. But anyways, Da Vinci had this limited diet as well. He ate vegan and it's because he loved animals so much. He hated animal cruelty. He would actually go to the market and there would be vendors there selling birds and he would buy birds and just set them free because he, he hated seeing them in cages. So that's the kind of guy he was and how he felt about animals. I should actually go back one other uh, sort of, I don't even know if this is conspiracy theory, but this is like speculation, I guess, is the Virgin and Child with St. Anne is a painting that I talked about. It's the one that put him on the map and made him very famous. So it is Jesus and Mary is twisting to kind of hold Jesus. And then Mary's mother, Anne, is holding Mary on her lap. Well, the weird thing about it is you've got child, mother, and grandmother, right? Well, St. Anne does not look like a grandmother at all. In fact, she looks basically the same age as Mary, which is kind of weird. You have these two women of the same age and one of them is sitting on the other one's lap. So the question is, why did he paint it this way without one of them looking older than the other? And the speculation is it's because he himself had two mothers, essentially. He had his mom who raised him, 
But then you'll remember that his parents were not married. And then he went to go live with his father and his stepmother. And, you know, she raised him from then until whenever he left the house. And so the speculation is that he was painting his two mothers uh, with, with a baby representing him. And this is once again, something that I think there's probably some merit to, um, at least subconsciously that he did have these two mothers. And so that's why he painted two mothers of roughly the same age. One other thing that I thought was interesting, um, that I had not known is you may have heard of this painting Salvatore Mundi. So this is something that just came to light recently as a, an undiscovered, a long lost Da Vinci. And so this was a huge deal. It was the first Da Vinci that was going to be on the market in a long, long time in dozens of years. And, uh, you know, yeah, the first one that had been discovered like this in a long, long time. So there was speculation of this is very cool. This is a new discovery, but also is this legit? Like, is this actually a Da Vinci painting? And it wasn't totally clear. And it was bought back in 2017 for $450 million by a, a Saudi prince, Prince Badr bin Abdullah Al Saud. And at the time it was the most expensive painting ever purchased. And I didn't pay that much attention to the media coverage, but at the time my impression was, wow, this Saudi prince, you know, classic Saudi prince behavior, big spender. And look at this. He's an idiot. He got swindled. You know, these, these Saudi princes not doing their due diligence. And this is probably not even really a Da Vinci. You know, it's probably a fake. And, uh, and he got hoodwinked. Well, I was interested to read in the Walter Isaacson biography that he has looked very closely at the evidence and he thinks that there's really compelling evidence that it is a Da Vinci, uh, at least partially like all Da Vinci's, it's probably been touched up a little bit and repaired over the years. But, um, but yeah, he thinks it's a legit Da Vinci and evidence from what he presents, at least seems pretty solid to me. There are still people who think it's fake, but I think the majority of art historians and authenticators think that it is real. And so I was, um, interested to learn that, that the Salvatore Mundi, this discovered Da Vinci really is probably the genuine article. It really is probably a Da Vinci. One of the interesting battles at the time and still ongoing is who gets to take credit for Da Vinci, the French or the Italians. And of course, you know, the Italian case is easy to make. He was Italian. He spent most of his life in Italy, whether in Florence or Milan or Rome. Um, and so, yeah, he was Italian. He worked there. So how could anyone else have any claim? Well, the case essentially goes like this, that, um, you know, it was the French initially who recognized him for a genius. And the French at the time essentially believed that Da Vinci was underappreciated in Italy. They didn't recognize his true genius. And so they were always trying to pump art out of him for these commissions. They weren't paying him enough and they didn't coddle him and love him the way that the French did. And it's true that when he went to Milan under French care, you know, they had this very aristocratic attitude towards him of we'll take care of you. We're going to pay you a stipend. We're going to pay you whatever you need. You're a genius. You just do you, you do whatever you're interested in. Whereas in Rome and in Florence, it was much more, Hey man, we hired you to do some, some paintings. Where are our paintings? Let's, let's see those paintings. And so they appreciated him in, in Milan under French rule. And they appreciated him even more in, in France proper when he joined Francis the first, the King of France up there. And then when he died, it was the French who snatched up a lot of his artwork because again, 
The Italians recognized his genius, but not the same way that the French did. The French were obsessed with da Vinci. They really, really recognized this guy as one of the greatest painters of all time. And they really had this hunger for his art. And so in the battle for who has the best taste in Europe, you know, that's a feather in the cap of the French of, hey, you had da Vinci right under your nose and you just thought that he was another good, really great painter. But we are the ones who really recognized him as the greatest of all time. I mention all this because it plays into part of what made the Mona Lisa so famous. So in 1911, the Mona Lisa is hanging in the Louvre, the biggest museum in France, in Paris, when it is stolen, it disappears. And for two years, it's just gone. But eventually the guy who stole it is caught and uh, he was Italian. And the reason he had stolen the Mona Lisa is he thought that it should be returned to its rightful home in Italy. So he steals it. He takes it back to Italy. Eventually he tries to to sell it, um, but he gets caught and the Italians on the one hand, you know, recognize, okay, this is not good to be stealing very famous pieces of art from France and they return it. But they also give the guy less than a year in jail, which I think is their way of saying you shouldn't have done this, but you do kind of have a point <laughs> that Da Vinci still belongs to Italy. And so to answer the question, is Da Vinci a son of Italy or a son of France? You know, he's a son of both. I, I'm not going to take a side in that battle. All I'll say is anyone who pretends like the French are invaders who sacked Italy and stole all these this Da Vinci artwork, it's not true. The reason they have a lot of Da Vinci stuff is because they had great taste, they recognized it, and they got it early on. And they've had it often for hundreds of years. And so that's why Da Vinci is often associated with Paris, with France. It's where a lot of his artwork is, even though he was from and mostly lived in Italy. Some other things that I found interesting are that multiple times throughout his life, he imagined, drew, wrote about, and planned these ideal cities. And to me, this is another parallel between him and other great leaders of history. So Walt Disney had Epcot, which is now just an amusement park, but at the time was supposed to be an experimental prototype community of tomorrow. That's what Epcot stands for. And it was supposed to be the city of the future. It was perfectly planned. And uh, it was going to be ideal for living and working and playing and commuting and everything was designed to Walt Disney's specifications. And then it was too ambitious to keep going after he died. And so they just turned it into an amusement park. But he had this desire to build the ideal city. Brigham Young, of course, wanted to do the same thing. If you listen to those episodes, Alexander the Great built all these Alexandrias, most famously in Egypt, but also in other places throughout the world. And so da Vinci also designed, you know, his ideal city a couple of times and almost got it built under the French. But ultimately, yeah, he died. And just like Walt Disney, it was a little too ambitious for other people. And so they abandoned the plans. But for whatever reason, great people have been drawn to this idea of building an ideal city along the lines of their own imagination. And da Vinci was no different. The last thing that I'll bring up is the last thing that da Vinci ever wrote. So the last thing he ever writes in his notebook is he's writing and he's kind of mid-sentence and he stops and he writes, I have to stop writing now because the soup is getting cold. And so you can just imagine him upstairs writing, thinking, you know, doing his experiments and he's got a servant downstairs who keeps telling him, Leonardo, the soup is ready. Leonardo, the soup is ready. Leonardo, the soup is getting gold. Come on, man. 
you don't want to eat cold soup. Let's go. And so eventually he has to stop and write, I have to stop now because the soup is getting cold. And to me, it just shows how much he loved what he did. This is why the greats are always light eaters because they are so obsessed with what they're doing that they can barely be bothered to stop to eat rather than to do what they love. So that was true of Da Vinci as well. You know, they have to beg him. And so I think it's emblematic that the last thing he ever wrote was, I have to stop writing now because the soup is getting cold. And if you want to be great like Da Vinci, you just have to find that thing, that thing that you love so much that um, you have to be dragged away kicking and screaming in order to be convinced to go eat. Okay, uh, those are my end notes. Those are my random thoughts from the life of Leonardo da Vinci. Hope you enjoyed it. I will give you a brief preview of next week's episode, which is about Steve Jobs. It's part three in my series of Steve Jobs, and it's about a book called Make Something Wonderful, Steve Jobs in His Own Words. So the Steve Jobs archive, which is his foundation established uh, by his widow, went through and gathered a bunch of interviews that he did, things that he wrote, emails that he sent, just basically everything that you could find from Steve Jobs in his own words. And they compiled it into a book. And so I went through and read it and just wrote down some of my top insights, top things that I learned from Steve in his own words. And it's a great book. I love it. So if you want to read that book in advance and compare notes, you can go to stevejobsarchive.com and it's free. They just have it up there. But I think you guys will love that. So tune in next week to listen to another episode of How to Take Over the World. Until then, thanks for listening.